I've asked Cooper Bartlett to come in to uh, read our passage of Scripture for us this morning. It comes to us from Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. I invite you, let's listen and let's hear the word of the Lord. Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that, we'll, that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow, so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. You may be seated. Say a special thank you to uh, all of our folks this morning who have been a part of this worship service and who have helped us uh, grow and connect and, and seek God. It is great to have so many voices up here. You know, I, I hate it when it feels like it's just the Jim Nichols show. <laughs> Nobody wants that. So it's great to have so many voices. I want to say thank you to all of you who have uh, taken part in leading this morning. Uh, in 1992, there was an album that made its way into my brand new Sony Walkman CD player. Can I just say walking around with a portable CD player back in the day was one of the most delicate things you could do. Any of you all remember that? One misstep and the disc would hang, you would get a skip, and the challenge, if you don't, young people with iPods and phones, you don't even know. <laughs> right? You don't even know. This CD um, that I got wasn't even mine. But I did know one of the songs. We had sung it in youth group over and over and over again. The song was Awesome God. It was my generation's Just As I Am. Anytime we were at camp, Awesome God had to be sung. And that was when you knew you were going to have your moment of dedication, right? The album was, uh, was Songs, and it was by Rich Mullins. And it was, uh, when you listen to it, it's like going on a musical journey. The album had, um, had an a cappella tune to it. It had uh, sweeping instrumentals. And it's had something that little Florida boy had never heard before. It had a hammered dulcimer. Wow. Uh, actually, it had a lot of hammered dulcimer. And I was transfixed every time I heard it play. Uh, it wasn't just the music, though, uh, it, it, that had me repeating the album. It was the lyrics. The lyrics were just intense. Some were funny. Um, faith without works is like a screen door with, with a, on a submarine. That's humorous. <laughs> Some lyrics were difficult, like let mercy lead, let love, the strength be, let love be the strength in your legs. And you can never forget the song entitled, All Right, Okay, Uh-Huh, Amen. That's one word. But there was one song that made such an impact that I started singing it in my sleep. The, the song starts with that hammered dulcimer, and it, and it plays, as it plays, it almost has this feeling like you're flying. 
The music video sweeps over fields that are blowing in the wind. It is driving. It is epic. And after nearly a full minute, Rich Mullins sings these words, I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and maker of earth. Song is five minutes and 22 seconds of Rich recite singing the words of the Apostles' Creed, something we just did a minute ago. I, I, I didn't grow up in a liturgical church. My pastor rarely wore a robe. We didn't recite the creeds. I barely knew the Lord's Prayer. I knew about my hymnal, but only the songs that were inside of it. Hearing what I later came to know as the creed had an effect on me that I couldn't understand as I listened to that song. I felt like that, that music was something old, like it had been sung over and over again by people of all kinds of different languages. And when I later learned that the words and, 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 and could sing it with Rich, I somehow felt like I was singing it with millions of other people. Isn't that weird? I, I can literally remember the sense as I listened to that song, feeling like I was connected to something. Rich Mullins was killed in a car accident in 1997, and I remember hearing uh, the news on our college campus, and I remember feeling this deep sense of loss of his death. And, and so I went and I grabbed the album and I listened to it over and over again, still not knowing the Apostles' Creed, but I would sing, I believe in God the Father. And for some moments in that music, I felt connected. In the chorus of the song, Mullen says this, and I believe what I believe is what makes me what I am. It did not make it. No, it is making me. It's the very truth of God and not the invention of any man. It's breathtaking. See, for Rich, this creed was making him. The words were actually forming him. Again, I had no idea that there was a thing called the Apostles' Creed at the time. It would be years later before I would learn it or the Nicene Creed. It would take many more years before I would realize that those things really mattered for us, that they weren't just old words that didn't make the cut in our Bible. But I knew they were really important somehow. And here's the punchline for the whole sermon, okay, just so you can check out after this. The words of the creed, they have the ability to make or break you. Last week, we explored the modern affirmation, words written in the 1930s by a professor who wanted his church to root themselves in the historic faith. It's an important collection of words for us here at Southern Hills, but they actually owe their formation to these creeds. Modern affirmation was written to speak to a certain issue in a location, in a time. In our hymnal, you can also find uh, connected with the affirmation statements of faith, which are a list of beliefs for denominations or particular branches. You can find the Psalter, um, psalms that were written for folks to say out loud, as we did earlier. These psalms were the prayer book of Jesus. Did you know that? That big giant book in your Bible was the prayer book for Jesus. He sang those words, his hymnal. These words that have praise and celebration and confession and lament, laments and, and their guttural cries of, oh God, help. 
But a creed is different from these affirmations or statements or even the Psalter. These are carefully crafted words that are conceived by a much larger, much more universal gathering of believers. It's an ecumenical collection, which means a bunch of people who struggle to get along. (laughs) They get together and they contain things found in those affirmations and statements and psalms. But the main difference is that the creeds are not only old, but they've been endorsed by the church throughout time. You know, it would be really difficult to imagine a, a modern creed because it would be nearly impossible to get the church spread out all over the globe to gather and to agree on anything anymore. You know, we can't agree on a whole lot now. But the church had this opportunity to do this. The oldest creed is actually found in the book of Acts. It's really short. It's unbelievably simple. And it was and it is provocative, dangerous, and powerful. It changed the world then, and it still changes the world today. You want to know what the oldest creed is? At least in our Christian faith? Nobody? Okay. It's really quiet. The oldest creed in the, ch- the Christian church is three words. Jesus is Lord. It's the oldest creed. A little phrase that proclaimed from Jerusalem to Rome and beyond, and wherever that phrase was, was, was whispered, the powers that be, the powers in control, man, they shook, they were, they were afraid. See, because that creed came out of a distinct need, a need to, to say very clearly and boldly who Jesus is and who Caesar isn't. Jesus is Lord. Our other challenges would plague the church over time, and longer creeds would be needed. In fact, in 313 AD, Emperor Constantine made Christianity legal. That's amazing to think of, isn't it? And later, he would make it the official religion of the Roman Empire, and for much of those preceding 300 years, the church was persecuted harshly by Rome and everybody else in between. There are many Christians who were martyred or enslaved, but even under such treatment, the church continued to grow and spread like crazy. Leaders stepped up and they encouraged new generations to continue in the story of faith. And during those years, there were different opinions or theologies. Often, they would come up. And leaders during those times would gather, sometimes in quiet and threat of their lives, and they would seek unity. And when Constantine politically tied the church to the government, those disagreements were now a matter of state. So in 325, Constantine called what was called the Ecumenical Council of Nicaea for the purpose of establishing order to this new official religion of the empire. It was also to help with any disagreements that threatened that unity of the church and really of Constantine's rule. One disagreement rose to the top of the discussion. There was a priest, his name was Arius, and he was preaching that Jesus was a created deity. He was God's son, but he wasn't co-eternal. He wasn't pre-existing. There was no such thing as a trinity. He claimed that the God of the Old Testament was not the supreme creator God, but a lower God called Jehovah, an angry and wrathful God of the Old Testament. Arius hated the Jews, and his anti-Semitism actually rooted very deep into the hearts of his followers. And so when this council meet, they met, and and Arius' theology is is brought to the whole body and is read aloud. There is this rumor that one bishop in particular 
um, as they're all gathered in this space from all over the empire, one bishop stands and he walks to the man who's reading this and he grabs the paper and he rips them up and he throws them on the ground and he stomps on them like my three-year-old. And he walks out of the hall and he opens the door and he finds Arius and he walks up to him and he slaps him in the face and he yells, heretic. I'm glad we're not doing that anymore. That bishop, you want to know who his name was? It's Nicholas, the one who would later be called Sinterklaas or Saint Nicholas or Santa Claus. So next time you see the jolly men in red, remember he comes to give gifts and smack heretics. The work of that council, they had to deal with Arius's heresy. They had to codify what it was that the church officially believed and what was considered holy scripture. They needed unity on the essentials if the religion was to unite Constantine's war-torn nation. So the majority of their work was spent adopting this creed that has become universal for the church. The creed is called the Nicene Creed, and it can be found on page 880 in our hymnals. That Nicene Creed was written with all of the church gathered, and it didn't take long for them to actually hammer out the phrases. It came rather quickly. Why? Because there was an older creed that predated it, actually. The church by this time was already large, and segments of the church, particularly in Rome, had been living in what they called, from around 150, the Roman symbol. Well, what is that? Well, the Roman symbol was a list of rules or beliefs of faith. And they were understood, according to tradition, to have been passed on by the disciples themselves. Twelve statements to help converts be prepared for baptism. A pastor named Irenaeus was taught those 12 rules and wrote them down by his pastor Polycarp. And Polycarp was a disciple of John the Apostle after his time on Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. The symbol was used to help believers understand the basics of faith. The symbol was a set of questions that helped us walk through those essentials. Do you believe in God the Father? Yes, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and maker of earth and on and on. By the late second century, the symbol had been adapted and it became known as the Apostles' Creed. Each and every follower of Jesus who came for baptism would be invited to share their belief in the form of this creed, as well as by a witness of a brother or sister who had discipled them. When Constantine legalizes Christianity, the beliefs of the church, they were already really clear. Arius's heresy was soundly defeated by a supermajority of the bishops in attendance because, well, Arius had rejected the symbol and the Apostles' Creed before it. Most of the council was shocked that he wouldn't hold those beliefs that the church had been following since that first generation of Christians had died out. All right, Jim, why is this important? It's just a history lesson. Great, thanks. Well, I think we get some of that from what Paul said to the church at Ephesus. See, Paul's writing to a church, and the people of Ephesus, man, they were a really proud group of folk. Their city was a major Roman hub. It was large and impressive and commercial and political, and it was this major religious center for the entire empire. 
In fact, Ephesus' primary goddess was Artemis, and Artemis' worship was expensive. She had a large, ancient wonder of a temple that required a lot of attention. Can you imagine that stewardship Sunday? And the Ephesians, they were tolerant of all kinds of beliefs as long as Artemis got her due diligence, her due allegiance. So when the church begins to grow in Ephesus and the creed of Jesus is Lord starts to spread, well, guess what? It becomes a financial problem for the city. It becomes a financial concern for the establishment of Artemis. They were a threat. So Paul writes this letter to these believers and he encourages them, hold fast. He says, you're not alone. He tells them that they need to stay united by the gifts of Christ himself. Gifts like apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers who are responsible to equip the church. And the church's responsibility was to utilize those gifts and continue in unity, which would help them, get this, to keep from being blown about by new teachings. This is there are tricks and lies that we should avoid. Things that the church had already deemed a, a perversion of the Jesus message. In the years that followed, the church would deepen and grow and use the symbol to help formalize their teachings. And during those years, the church would speak truth to one another in love. They would hear each other out. They would seek God's leading or the writings of the apostles and the prophets. They would, they would seek the counsel of pastors and teachers for solutions and unity Sometimes those discussions were quick, and other times they became feuds, and they required time, with Constantine needing to come to the church and to cement his legacy and unity in his empire. Arius' heresy needed more than debate, needed the state's intervention. So as the bishops gather, and they step back, and they hold on to the key beliefs that solidly contradict his teachings of Arius, it took no time for them to talk about a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-eternal and of one, out of one essence, or homoousia. They didn't need a lot of time to talk about birth and life and death under Pilate and resurrection. That was standard. The work of the Spirit, the centrality of the universal church, the return of Christ, the forgiveness of sins, these are all things that the church had held for 200 plus years. To codify these things was to just publicly declare together that these were what we hold as our foundations. And if you denied them, maybe you weren't a part. See, that was Arius' problem. He could not, he would not agree to either the creed or the Roman symbol. The council didn't randomly decide what was in and what was out. I know some secular historians who would like to disagree with me on this, but history doesn't support those theories. Dan Brown of the Da Vinci Code is still wrong. A church story was set long before Nicaea. The code, the foundation of the church still stood. Listen again, I believe in God, the Father, almighty maker of heaven and maker of earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried 
The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And they end with this word, so be it. Amen. These words, ancient and yet familiar to our ears, are declarations against the teachings that Paul is warning the Ephesians about. They ground us, they hold us secure, and they connect us to believers all over the globe who stand on their truth. They aren't sacred words like the Bible, but they certainly point us to the sacred one that we find in the pages of our scriptures. When Rich Mullen sang those words to this kid in 1992, I found myself connected to a church much larger than my home church. The words began to seep into my soul. They were making me. And that's what these two creeds do. Apostles and Nicene, they make us or they break us. The words form us and they ground us in a world of wishy-washy sentiment. Sentiment. They're not dreamt up. We didn't make them up. As Rich says, they're the very truth of God and not the invention of anyone. They form the basis for our affirmations and statements of faith and they infuse Psalter with a depth that I think even King David would have went, yeah. They're a way to stand among the noise of a world gone off its rocker and say, I believe. I mentioned at the beginning of worship this morning that the last couple days, for some reason for me, have been difficult. I can't really say why. I mean, I could give you a run, rundown of my week. We could look over my calendar. You would hate that. <laughs> I could share with you all of the challenges and the dramas, both personally or here in the church or anywhere else. I could explain in, in great detail about my week. Wouldn't help. I told my family last night that I felt heavy, like there's this oppressiveness, like, um, like an elephant was sitting on my soul. There's a visual. And so I chose to spend some time in silence and solitude. Not a lot, but a little. And so I walked Jacobson's Park, and I sat on the dock overlooking the, the little lake there. And as I sat, soaking up the sun and reveling in the beauty of God's creation, I heard something in my soul. It started out with a hammer dulcimer. It followed with Rich singing, I believe what I believe, because it, it's what makes me what I am. I heard the belief of millions of brothers and sisters sitting on that little lake, all claiming me as a part of their family. And as I sat there, as I reflected the rest of the evening, all I could do over and over in my head is say, I believe. I believe. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what you brought with you into this room this morning. Maybe you're feeling the weight of the world, an elephant sitting on your soul. Maybe not. Maybe you're feeling good, honky-dory. Maybe you got nothing. You're just kind of coasting. Can I invite you to remind yourself this morning and maybe the next time you have that feeling to pause and to remember who you are? 
what you are a part of. And then in the middle of it, soak it up. Even if it just means you're saying, I believe. Lord, help my unbelief. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you for this day and for this story. It's very different than other sermons and times that we spend in your word. But it's important, nonetheless, a reminder of these ancient words, that they're not just things that we pass on and go over so quickly, but they're words that make us, that form us, that hold us close, that link us to a body connected over time and miles. Lord, we thank you that these words are making us. I pray, God, that as each and, of, each and every one of us have, have heard these words again multiple times now this morning, that throughout this coming week, when we have those moments when, wow, we feel disconnected or alone or isolated or by ourselves, that we will remember that we are a part, a part of the body, a body that, that proudly, boldly stands and says, I believe. Lord, use these words to help us be the church you have called us to be, to share your love with our neighbors and those who have yet to come home. We pray all of this in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All God's people said, amen.